0: I'm Chris Reback. This is Working Capital Conversations. From gender-based pay gaps to leadership roles, advancement opportunity to corporate culture, the treatment of women in the workplace, and how to enhance growth opportunities for women executives is and has been under continual focus. But now this important focus is frequently combined with an emerging trend, the aging and multi-generational workforce. The numbers may surprise you. The number one growing demographic in today's workplace is women over 55. In fact, the number of people over 55 is going to be 25% of our workforce in five years. The statistics come from Diane Flynn, co-founder and CEO of Reboot Excel, accelerating the careers of women in the workplace and consulting with high growth and Fortune 500 companies, as she puts it, interested in creating workplaces where women thrive. It's also why, with companies like Airbnb, Udemy, Visa, and Gap, Flynn has launched the Silicon Valley Longevity Project, which seeks to bring together companies recognizing that how companies prepare for and respond to changing workplace demographics will have a profound influence on their ability to compete in the global marketplace and will affect the communities in which they operate. More background. Flynn previously served as chief marketing officer of GSV Labs, a marketing executive at Electronic Arts, and an associate consultant at the Boston Consulting Group. Like many professional women, she also left the workforce for a period to raise her family. So what can and should companies do? And what lessons can be learned from executives and firms who have succeeded and from those who have failed? Before my conversation with Diane, though, I have an ask from me to you. I hope you like these working capital conversations, and if so, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast. Thank you for considering my request. That's it. Here's my conversation with Diane Flynn. Diane, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time.
1: You're welcome. Delighted to be here.
0: So a conversation with you, I think, should start with the big picture. Um, As we come to the end of the second decade of the millennium, in other words, the end of 2019, how would you characterize the state of the playing field for women in the workplace?
1: That is a great question, Chris, and I I have mixed uh, emotions on it. I think, on the one hand, there are a lot of positives for women that have evolved, especially in recent years. I think there's there's been um, women using their voice much more than they used to. I think some atrocities of the past have been have come to light, which is a great thing for women. Um, a lot of companies that we work with are initiating. Uh, Support mechanisms and, you know, through mentorship and in women's employee resource groups and executive coaching and all kinds of interventions to really support women which are needed, Uh, taking unconscious bias out of the hiring process to the extent that they can has been helpful. However, I temper that with the fact that a recent study said that 60% of men now, as opposed to 40% about three years ago, are afraid to mentor women. Hmm. And I think that's doing women a huge disservice and men because men are then not benefiting um, from the voice of women. And, and we know from a lot of the great studies done by BCG and McKinsey and Deloitte that, that women, uh, on your team contribute to the bottom line. And so uh, to the extent that companies can really maximize the voices of all diverse groups, uh, they benefit. And so when men are afraid to to mentor women or support women in some ways because of you know what they might be accused of or who knows what's um, holding them back, it, it hurts everybody. So that's why I say uh, I think there's been a lot of, Positive traction, and I think there's been some um, steps backward at the same time.
0: And in turn, in, in addition to the that, I don't know if that would be called a cultural component, um, but the, in, I'm, I'm also interested in the numeric component. And so often, um, success or progress um, in the workplace is measured in. Pay and in a pay gap, and that may not be fair, and that may not be the only metric but um let's let's talk it because you just described one that's that's you know certainly not. Um, moving in a, in a totally constructive direction. Um, but, but talk to me about the, the pay aspect because in the end that's kind of the, the, you know, that's highly measurable. And, um, PayScale ran a, a study or a, a survey and released its state of the gender pay gap for 2019. And I, I was interested in what they kind of differentiated as the uncontrolled gender pay gap versus the controlled Gender pay gap, and I can explain what I mean on the on the uncontrolled gender pay gap, which takes the ratio of median earnings of all women to men. So, so all the women working versus all the men that are working. And th- their survey showed that women still make only 79% of every dollar that men make in, in 2019. And I've seen stats like that. I'm sure you have as well. Kind of, you, you see those stats around 80%, that type of thing. And they said that uncontrolled wage gap represents the, that women are less likely to hold high level, high paying jobs than men. And there are structural barriers which keep women from advancing in the workplace. And they kind of call that the opportunity gap. They then looked at something and, and took survey data on the controlled gender pay gap, which controls for a number of factors, such as job title, years of experience, industry, and location. And, and so that the only differentiation, if they're running their survey correctly, between workers is their gender. And on that, um, so same job, different gender, same, I guess, in a sense, same everything, different gender, um, they claim that women now make 98 cents for every dollar um, that an equivalent man makes. So two questions out of that, that you know, kind of extensive preamble. One, on that opportunity gap, on that 80%, on that um, women being less likely to hold high-level, high-paying jobs than men, why can that not close? I mean, we, we all have been hearing about that for so long, why does that remain in your experience so vast? And then two, from your experience, do you buy the other part? You know, same job, everything controlled, woman versus man. Do you buy that it's 98 cents out of every dollar that women are making 98% or does that seem overstated based on your experience?
1: Well, it's a great question. And, you know, I think to level set, I think it's important to acknowledge that there is a spectrum of companies out there. And the way I think of them is uh, they move from the, let's call it less enlightened (laughs) companies on Mm. the um, spectrum where I think, you know, we see it all the time and you read about it in the news. There are bro cultures, there are, you know, cultures that really do not support women. and, And I think that you know, in some of those, you're going to see huge pay gaps and huge inequities of women advancing Um, to the other end of the spectrum, which I call the highly evolved companies or highly enlightened companies. And I was just reading a great article about Slack being one of them, where they have not only a much higher percent of women in the company, but women in management, women in technical roles, and it has translated to the bottom line. Hmm. So, so I think it's important to differentiate those. As far as why women aren't, uh, to your first question about the uncontrolled pay gap, BCG has a really interesting study that they looked at, you know, thousands of companies globally, and they found that when you look at the pipeline of, of, uh, employees women are starting you know slightly higher than men there's more than 50% in the very entry level and we know that from looking at college graduation rates um, that women are are graduating at a higher rate than men they are entering the workforce so there really isn't a problem at the entry level but what you see is once you get up to the managerial level and then the director, executive, CEO, a uh, huge fall off going from 50 percent to, you know, down to the CEOs in the 10 or less percent. And uh, what the work that we do at Reboot Excel is really to address that. What happens to these women and why do they fall off? And what we found is that um, there's all kinds of reasons. You know, I think there's there's the. Uh, the The sense that women still carry the bulk of domestic responsibility uh, it is changing i 'm seeing a lot more men making that choice to stay home, but historically, women have and i think still continue to um, assume that role and so women are stopping out i 'm an example of that. I spent you know time at BCg I spent a decade in electronic arts and then I had two toddlers and um, my husband was traveling all the time and I made that choice. Um, women still make that choice more than men. I think the great news is that I have daughters in their 20s now and, and they are going to have much different options than I had because I had the all in or all out option. I think today mm-hmm. we're seeing, you know, lots of people are working remotely. They're working part time. Uh, my my daughter's traveling the world right now and she's got a few contract jobs that she's doing from coffee shops in you know, Paris. <laughs> I couldn't do that um, when I when I stepped out. So I think that is going to help. Uh, but but that's that's a you know kind of lifestyle choice that is being made. I think what's happening in a lot of these less enlightened companies is women don't have the same resources that men have, and that can be uh, a great example of that is informal networks. You know, uh, fewer women golf as a very obvious example. Uh, my husband golfs. Lots of his deals happen on the golf course. Uh, that's not to say that uh, that's a bad thing, but it does suggest that unless women have access to those same kinds of informal networks, they're going to miss out on opportunities. In a lot of these companies, women can be the only people in their uh in the room you know and so if they are not included in some of these informal networks they don't even know about um opportunities either for advancement or mentorship Uh, mentorship is another big one when we survey women a lot of them have no mentors and men often do and even Forbes wrote a great article about the different kinds of mentoring that a lot of women receive than men. They call it pie and cake mentoring. And without getting into the weeds, uh, basically men are getting mentoring that propels their careers. It's more around leadership and exposure to, uh, senior meetings and understanding power and all that. Women's mentoring is often takes the form of encouragement and, uh, confidence building, and that's not a bad thing, but it's not exactly the the type of mentoring that's going to get them to the next level. Um, there's uh, a whole a whole number of other things. I think unconscious bias is huge in the in the advancement process. Mm-hmm. You often read that men are promoted based on potential. And women are promoted based on proven experience yep. that that kind of uh, approach is going to uh, favor men when it comes to advancement and there's been tons of unconscious bias research even even how job descriptions are written up, hmm. sometimes there's more masculine verbiage in the in the d- job description that either favors men in the process or attracts more men to apply. Um, We also know about the, you know, the confidence gap or imposter syndrome that tends to impact women. uh, I'm sure everyone knows the study that, you know, men will apply to a job if they meet 60% of the criteria and women will often not apply unless they can tick every checkbox. That's the kind of thing that, that women, um, that hold women back. And then finally, I just note that Mm. in the, in the um, pay, uh, Equity piece, women don't tend to negotiate on their own behalf as much or as uh, diligently as men. So, women are great in research at negotiating for others. They are some of the best managers because they will, they have your back. But when it comes to negotiating for themselves, they don't. And so, what we're seeing is even companies that uh, regularly do pay equity analyses. The, you know they they might find their uh, uh at equity one year and then they're out of sync uh two years later and what we believe is happening is that the men continue to negotiate and the women don't so even if you get them at parity they don't negotiate and then they fall behind again hmm. so that's why we always encourage companies to do this kind of pay equity on a regular basis
0: so so much there and in the fact that there's so much there probably goes to the heart of, uh, you know, my first couple of questions about, uh, you know, where, where are we today? Are you satisfied with where we are today? Why do various gaps still exist? And you're describing just a multi-layered series of, um, integrated challenges, um, some of which play off of each other and, and can kind of exacerbate and, and make other situations um, even more uh, complex so well me- Chris
1: can I add, can yes, I add please. one can I final one of course I just realized I didn't address your second question about the you know the other the, the demographic I work very closely with are women who've paused careers and now want to return to work to the workplace mm. I have yet in the five years I've been doing this and the thousands of women we've helped relaunch careers seen any woman come anywhere close to the pay they were earning when they paused. And there is a huge sacrifice that uh, I wish more women knew about that, you know, it's, it's great to stay home and take care of children or, you know, caregiving needs, maybe elderly parents. But it is important to understand that the kind of sacrifice that one makes from a pay standpoint. And I think it speaks to Uh, Lots of things, but I think one of them is there is a discounted value for volunteer service. And one of the uh, things we do with women going through our programs that we help get current, connected and confident to return to work is we say, don't discount what you did during your time off. Most of them held significant leadership positions as volunteers and we say, just because you did not get a paycheck does not mean that you did not develop skills that are highly valuable to companies. And so when we help them with resumes and LinkedIn profiles and, and e- interviewing, we really encourage them to package and reframe what they did as head of the PTA or uh, working on a nonprofit or whatever they did yep. to say, what were, what were those skill sets that you kept uh, actively engaged And and even developed during your time off. Most of them will tell you that because they had to juggle households and kids and lots of schedules, they became very efficient. They became very resourceful. Um, They became very decisive. They have a great perspective on what really matters. And all of that is a, is a, you know, critical thing that companies should be thinking about when they hire people. Uh, because those are those soft skills that we keep hearing companies can't find in people, and I think a lot of these women who've paused careers and are now interested in returning uh, bring those to the workplace. In addition to the fact that they bring a lot of humility and, and um, oftentimes they're more about the team and feeling engaged and feeling purposeful and driven than, than you know, climbing the corporate ladder, which we often hear is great for the culture.
0: Yeah, well I sometimes I wonder um for the folks who aren't able to find uh those capabilities that you just described. Um I'm I'm frequently curious how well how hard are you looking? <laughs> I mean, you know, they they, <laughs> exactly. they they might they might be there. Um in yeah. listening to you as well, um it is striking me that what you do personally and and what you do with um Reboot Excel is is almost bifurcated and yet Integrated. And what I mean is you are, you seem to simultaneously be working with, um, individuals with women coming back into the workforce. And, and I've got some questions for you on that and, and the, some of the stats that I've seen you talk about, about the, um, number one growing demographic in today's workplace being women over 55. And, and, and I want to talk to you about that. And you're dealing on that level and you seem to simultaneously be dealing with, uh, the C suites at some of our most significant companies and corporations, um, in terms of helping them consider culture, think about culture and maybe even evolve their cultures. Uh, you, you talked about enlightened versus not enlightened companies uh, on that second point, And, and I'm sure that there are lessons from both aspects of what you do that, that drive your work and, and give you insights to be able to help, um, uh, both, both sides. Uh, on the part of working with the companies, um, does that type of enlightened culture, as you call it, does that start from the top? Is that a leadership question? And parallel to that, how do you guide women who don't see that leadership at the top of their own companies?
1: What you're asking is exactly the content of the book that my partner Patty White and I are writing right now, So, um, but it's, it's called The Female Dividend. And it is uh, all about. We, it, this has to start at the top. Um, what we do is we dissect. You know, what do companies need to do to support women and advance women in the workplace? And we argue that if it if it doesn't come from the leader, it's not going to work. And study after study has proved that out. That being said, it's not just a leader issue, and it's not just an HR issue. Um, yes, you need programs and policies to support support women. You need, uh, you know, one of the number one most demanded workplace attributes right now, not just from women, but millennials and parent, all parents and caregivers is flexible work arrangements. Mm. And so that is uh, something we're seeing, you know, very aggressively adopted here in Silicon Valley, where I um, but you know, you're starting to see it all across the country, and there's still some resistance. Um, and and you know, we talk about how to overcome that resistance. But that's an example of a, pro, a family leave is another one. If you don't encourage men to take par- uh, parental leave, then you are handicapping all women. So there's lots of things that HR needs to be thinking about in terms of uh, programs. But then we have a whole list of things that the women need to be doing. And to your question about what can a woman do, you know, where the leadership doesn't embrace this, uh, they can, you know, they, ha- they have to find their voice. They have to, uh, you know, make sure that their uh, their voice is heard around the table because you're not going to benefit from, you know, what we call the female dividend unless that voice is heard. And so uh, we do a lot of workshops. To empower women, we do a lot of executive coaching uh, for women. And we think that. What about, that- the,
0: what about the woman who says, I could hear somebody listening to you right now and saying, I, you know, I, I hear you sister, but that is easier said than done because you have not been inside my company. And the culture in yeah. my company is if I speak, I agree. I, I'm strong. You know, I agree. I should speak up and I'm not shy about speaking up. I can speak up about business issues. I can speak up about, um, operations or production lines. But if I want to speak up about, Culture and about fairness, you know, that's not going to go over uh, so well. In you know, that that's that's not going to be heard. No one's going to hear me on that.
1: Mm -hmm. So that's why a lot of the research says it's you don't benefit when you have one woman in the room. You need, Mm -hmm. I think, they say twenty percent is the bare minimum, and I think that's partly why California has imposed new laws for public companies around women on boards. Um, There have to be enough underrepresented voices to amplify each other so that that is definitely proven in research it's very hard to be a trailblazer if you're the only voice around the room uh at some point i would probably tell that woman if they're just up against a wall that maybe that's not the place that they are going to be most effective um you know i i hate saying that but i also think it is the reality there are companies that are just it's you know they have a long way to go, and one woman is probably not going to um, be the change that they need to see. Uh, I think if you can get more women, one of the things we do when we work with uh, companies, you know, we're working with one that has an entire senior leadership team, 14 people, and they're all men. And we made a very um, strong case that next time there are openings in at that level. Um, and they need to be thinking about how do you put women in there, one, to capture their voice, but two, to create visible role models for the rest of the organization. We spent a uh, half day with a number of the female leaders in a uh, women's summit. And we heard many women say, you know, I don't see a path for me. I don't see a role model. You know, they they basically said, "I'm going to leave this company if I don't see where I can grow," and so that is a secondary reason, aside from the importance of the diverse voice at the table, is is to show women in your organization that there there are paths for them and that they are valued. Um, so there's um, there's you know a number of uh, ways that women can help advocate. Uh, a lot of companies have heads of DNI. I, I'd say working closely with them. Um, they're usually very sensitive to the underrepresented groups in the company. And um, interestingly, when I go back to the evolved companies, companies like Slack consciously do not have a head of uh, diversity and inclusion because they say we don't need it. You know, we already, it's baked into our DNA. And, and that's the interesting thing. If you're If you're at the opposite end of the spectrum, you need somebody in that role, I think, to to really advocate. But as you evolve, uh, it should just be part of, you know, respecting each individual despite their gender, race, any of that. And, And and that's where I'd love our society to get to.
0: How defensive do leaders get when you talk to them about this? If you, if you identify, I mean, the, the, you know, the company just mentioned 14 male leaders, when they come to you, when you, when you get to them, is that because, is, is it a self-selecting group? Is that because they've, they want to make some change? And so they're looking for some expertise and some guidance on how to, on how to make it? Or is there a a sense of, defensiveness might be too strong and I'm sure you wouldn't necessarily want to characterize any of your clients as having been defensive, of course, um, but, but you know what I mean. Do you have to deal with that balance? Do you see that balance out there?
1: Well, what we see is usually Um, very enlightened leaders because they wouldn't carve out the time and bring us in unless they cared. So I would say in this case, this was a group, I wouldn't say everyone around the table was bought into (laughs) gender diversity, (laughs) but the important thing is the CEO was, the head of HR was. um, And so that's why we got, we got to the table. Uh, I would Add, you know, we do some work with private equity and and uh, CDNR is one of our clients, and I, I want to give them a shout out because I think they're really uh, very conscious of the importance of this, and they've invested, you know, in us and invested in in making this a priority.
0: I want to make sure that we get a chance to talk as well um, about. Another just really fascinating aspect that I have heard you talk about, which is the aging and multi generational workplace. Um, Earlier this summer, you were in a panel discussion um, where you you said, "Well, many things remarkable. One of which was." The number one growing demographic in today's workplace is women over 55. That's number one. And the number of people over 55 is going to be 25% of our workforce in five years, and that's up from 10%. So um, first, what's the why? Why is that occurring? And secondly, what does this mean qualitatively for the workforce, workplace culture, and for opportunity for women, um, how does, how does this aging and multi-general, multi-generational workplace, um, how does it affect the things that you've been talking about?
1: So let me address the why first. And these are my, uh, some research and some opinions, but when I see the women I work with who are over 55 reentering, about a quarter of them are going through a major life transition. Typically that would be a divorce, uh, for some, it is uh, we have a number of widows that didn't expect to be working. Mm. Uh, we also have uh, empty nesters like myself. <laughs> as, as I commented earlier uh, before we started the call, I'm so delighted that I am working because, um, you know, the the house is empty. And so there's a lot of that. You know, people uh, at 55, I remember my mom at, at 55 never would have contemplated going back to work. Uh, we're living so much longer. You know, I my dad started a charter school at 85, chaired his last meeting at 87. And that's the role model I grew up with is that as long as we have the mental and capacity to give back and do meaningful work, that is what I want to be doing. And so uh, if you look at, you know, if I live till 85 or 87 like my dad, I'm only halfway through my adult life. So that's a lot of years to be uh, doing something meaningful. Uh, we, we're healthier. We're more active. We're mm-hmm. more educated. We have more experience, you know, work experience than previous generations. So I think for all those reasons, um, people want to go back to work. The other thing you asked about the implication, yeah. you know, we do a lot of retreats for women uh, who want to resume careers. Almost. Every single one of them, and they, these are women in their 40s, 50s, 60s, wants to have some kind of social impact. I'm, I'm mm. truly amazed by how many of them are seeking purpose and meaning at this point in life. It's that second mountain uh, that David Brooks you know, alludes yeah. to in his book yeah. that they really want to give back. And whether it's uh, sustainability, the environment, mental health, building community – um accommodating caregivers you name it i think that the impact of bringing all these women into the workplace at you know older ages is going to have tremendous positive impact on our community um, at large and that's what I think truly gets me so excited about the work I do is I see these women going out and, and really making a difference and making money doing it. You know, it's a very empowering thing as well. Um, to your comment about the multi-generational workplace, we are doing uh, an initiative here. And so it's starting in Silicon Valley, but we hope it spreads nationwide quickly. Uh, we're calling it the, the longevity project. And we have companies like Visa and The Gap and Airbnb and Udemy and um, others behind it as charter members. And what we're really trying to do based on Chip Conley's great book called Wisdom at Work, where he talks about how five generations are now working side by side. Mm. Uh, He was brought into Airbnb at 52 and worked with Brian Chesky, who was in his 30s at the time. And and realize that you have to combine, because he says, fresh eyes with wise eyes. Hmm. And, uh, you know, all the experience that these older people bring is a great compliment to the digital natives who have, you know, lots of energy and ideas, but perhaps not the same degree of wisdom that some of us who've made a lot of mistakes and learned through the years um, have have garnered. And so that's, I think, the beauty of these, we call it age friendly workplaces where you can take this mix and, and through mutual mentorship programs and, um, you know, lots of different uh, different ways to really help uh, each individual bring their best self to work. So that's that's the goal of our project.
0: But, but Diane, you, you understand that millennials don't plan on making mistakes. So <laughs> yeah, uh, learning from those of us who have made them—that that's you know seems a waste of energy.
1: And, yeah,
0: uh, yeah I, I know, I know. <laughs>
1: there's a great there's a great quote that um, God tried to get it right. Uh, Wisdom comes from. Exp- uh, no, no. Good judgment comes from bad judgment. Good judgment comes from experience, and experience comes from a lot of bad judgment. Something like uh, that. Yeah,
0: yeah. That sounds know, you right. You have
1: to make all the mistakes to to finally get to the wisdom. But no one ever sees that at the f- front end.
0: It must explain why I feel so wise and so experienced. Yeah. <laughs> uh, tell me on, on a on a practical level, and and you know. Tongue a little bit in cheek, but, but not, not fully. I mean, very practically. Um, can we all get along? Can, I mean, are you seeing, do, do, are you seeing and do companies see tangible benefits from the, the multi-generational workforce, um, from the integration of, um, uh, you know, newer workers and more experienced workers?
1: Absolutely. I'll give you one example that Chip likes to tell. Yeah. Um, Again, Chip Conley, who joined Airbnb, you know, one of his first meetings, he talks about the young uh, uh, developers wanted to develop Airbnb um, as an app used accessible by a phone. Well, Chip made the point that, you know, a lot of the at least I don't know if Chip made the point, but (laughs) Chip Chip suggested that um, what the some of the older people at Airbnb uh, mentioned is that because a lot of their hosts are over fifty, they are not as comfortable uh, using phone first as a platform for booking and and uh, doing their Airbnb. And <clears throat> not only that, but you know after fifty, your eyesight isn't quite as clear. And so uh, because of that recognition. Airbnb then you know, adopted a web-based platform, hmm. and uh, it's just one small example where uh, if, if everyone is in their 20s or early 30s, you may not think about the perspective of somebody like that. Um, Chip also at Airbnb found two of the, I guess, super hosts who had hosted the most uh, Airbnb nights, yeah. and they were a man and woman in their 60s and 70s, I think, and brought him in for a three-month internship, so that everyone in the company could learn from um, from their experience and from idea. their wisdom. Yeah, and and Pfizer, likewise, several years ago, brought in you know, sort of based on that movie, the intern or the 70-year-old intern, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, brought in uh, a gentleman who was in his 70s, and I actually saw him. On a panel at, at uh, South by Southwest with a, an intern who was, I think, 24 or 20. No, I guess she was in college, so maybe 22. And, and they each talked about what they learned from each other. And she said from him, she learned about gravitas, about standing up, about eye contact, shaking hands. He would take them out to lunch and share his wisdom. You know, from them, he learned about social media and digital marketing and all these new uh approaches that he wasn't familiar with so those are a couple of examples where um i think that you know what we really need is we need to all be good listeners and we all need to be uh curious and we we i think judging um each other is the worst thing we can do and to ever say, you know, all millennials are X or all older people are, you know, lack energy or any of those things is a disservice. And I think to the extent that we can approach every conversation as an opportunity to learn, that's how we're all going to benefit.
0: Diane, thank you.
1: Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.